invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. As we're turning there, I just want to give you a couple quick things. Um, one is we do have, um, we've been talking a lot here, and obviously the, the life of a Christian is about sharing our faith and going out. And part of last week was going out and serving, and, and yet there's another piece of going out where we have to at some point talk about Christ. And you may be uncomfortable with that, or you, you may not be certain and confident in that. And we have a class coming up here in November, a seminar, um, and it's on a Saturday coming up here. I think it's the second Saturday in November, but we have information in there. Don't quote me on that. I can't remember which date it is. Is it the second Saturday? Yep. Um, so check that out. Um, and you may look at it and go, hey, wow, that's a chunk of time. It is a chunk of time, and it's worth it. Um, for our Savior, it's worth it. It's worth it to, to sit down and try to figure out, okay, how do I get better at this and improve? I just want to let you know that that's coming up as well. Um, and we'll be hearing some uh, stories about Alpha here. I would imagine a couple weeks, uh, God is moving in Alpha. It is so cool, some of the stories. So um, Keep that in mind. We'll be talking about that. And also keep in mind someone that you can invite. It's, it's here to stay. We're going to be doing Alpha for a while. And so we're starting again in January, and we're doing another one again in April. We're going to keep doing this three times a year. So think about who you could invite to Alpha, and possibly if it makes them feel safer, more comfortable, go with them. But uh, be praying through that. So we're in Romans. Uh, last week, or two weeks ago rather, we started Romans chapter 1, verses 18. We only got two verses in. And uh, it was about God and how he's in plain sight. It starts in uh, verse 18. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse, or all people are without excuse. And we talked about how God was in plain sight, and, and the evidence and the scientific data that's out there that just proves there are, or moves someone to that point where you see there has to be someone there who caused the earth to exist, and there also has to be someone who designed it because of the intricacy and the sheer impossibility of this coming together by chance. And we talked about how God is in plain sight as you look at this universe. Then going on, now we skipped some things because the big one that we skipped was the wrath of God, right? I wish I had like uh, Charlton Heston voice or whatever. The wrath of God, right? A serious topic. Big topic. I don't know how much you've thought about the wrath of God. It's one of these things that in, in many people's mind uh, is a turnoff. And they have in mind the Greek gods or the Roman gods who are capricious. You know, you, you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know why you're going to get it. And they would just, you know, wreak havoc on humanity and these, as these stories would roll out. And there was never a consistent understood standard of righteousness is just how the God felt that day and what he did that day. And a lot of people look at that and they transfer their understanding of God and his wrath from that and to who he is. A lot of people struggle with the concept of wrath because they say, how can a loving God have wrath or be wrathful as it's described right here, right? 
And even some Christians struggle with that. And you see Christ followers and even denominations, we've seen even more recently, try to reinvent God and write that out of the equation. And let's just focus on God's love, and, and that's it. And, and they kind of make him into a Morgan Freeman, you know, from Bruce Almighty or whatever that, that movie was. I never watched it, but I saw clips of it. You know, it's the, well, uh, Morgan Freeman. Some of you remember uh, George Burns back in the day, right? Who was God? That was, sorry, younger generation, you don't know George Burns. That's fine. Um, look it up. Yeah, you can, not right now on your phones. Put your phone away, unless it's your Bible. That's fine. Um, so anyway, it's this grandfather who never really gets mad at sin, just kind of, you know, shepherds people along and gets him a pat on the back and some sage advice every once in a while. And if it's George Burns, he smokes a cigar every once in a while. I mean, that's, that's how people think God is. And how could God have wrath, right? The reality is that we actually count on the wrath of God. We need the wrath of God. It's something we depend on, and it seems counterintuitive, but we need it. Because if God doesn't have any wrath, what happens to injustice? What happens to the guy who kills how many people in Vegas? What happens to all the people that got rounded up this past week across the nation who were in the sex trafficking trade with underaged minors? Where's God's wrath then, right? You pick your whatever, your harm, your violence against humanity, and all of a sudden we need God's wrath. We want it. We expect it. And that's just it. A loving God, when he sees violence perpetrated against people who are made in his image and who have immeasurable worth, he must act in wrath. He has to. There has to be justice. There has to be a, a score settled at some point. But his wrath is not like our wrath. Uh, it emerges out of this. He says, you know, right there, Paul has written that God's invisible qualities, eternal power and divine nature. It emerges out of this eternal power, divine nature, the divine nature is righteous and holy, and eternal means it's been that way all along. There's never been a beginning or an end. It's just who he is, righteous, holy. Immutable. Great word, right? Unchangeable. Can't be tweaked. Tweaked. Can't be winked at. Sorry. Right? It, it applies to everyone. It's the same standard when we wake up today and when we go to sleep tonight and when we wake up tomorrow. It'll be the same that it has always been. And what's interesting is Paul, as he begins to explain the gospel of God, get this, as he explains the gospel of God, his opening words... And it starts halfway through chapter 1 and goes all the way through half th halfway through chapter 15. The opening words is, the wrath of God is revealed. He starts with that. And it's against everyone. Everyone. 
And what makes it difficult is that's how he starts the gospel of God all the way through the rest of chapter 1, all the way through chapter 2, and halfway through chapter 3 is explaining why the wrath of God is being revealed. And here in chapter 1, he starts with this idea, and he gives a couple reasons for it. The, the first reason is people suppress the truth, yeah, and that's what we just talked about. People are suppressing what may be known about God because it's plain to them, and God has made it plain to them. The suppression is, is, is the idea of you having a, a jar or a container, and you've got something in that's trying to get out, and you're putting a lid on it. You're trying to keep it down, screw it down, tighten it down. That's suppression. So the truth is trying to get out and people kind of trying to stuff it back in and that's suppression. Kind of, uh, it's this idea of we know God's out there but we want to make sure we can control that and stop people from hearing that and stop having to listen to it ourselves. And so we suppress it as it were. We bury it. Hide it. And, and when you think about it from God's point of view, I mean, it says he's angry about this, the wrath of God's being revealed, but you think about it, he's created the world. He's God, right? He's created this world. He's created us. He created us to have a relationship with us. And then he watches us pretend like he doesn't exist. He's like, I'm right here. Like, really? I'm right here. And then he watches us pretend like we can be like him. And he's like, Really? I'm right here. Like, you're going to try to pretend like, to be like me. He's God, right? He created this world. And then we pretend even more that he's not even there. And we start to say to other people, oh, no, 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 he doesn't exist. And this is what humanity does. I would say we, because many of us have turned that corner and say, no, no, he does exist. So as I say that plural thing, we it is the past tense for many of us, but it's still all of us at one point. And that's the, that's the intent of that. And, and so it's not only that they're suppressing it, we're denying it. And he says it's, it's godlessness, it's wickedness. See, it's not just like an action like, oh, they're just trying to suppress the truth. He literally says, no, this is ungodly, this is wicked, this is pure evil, anyone who would suppress the truth. It's not a gray issue. And students, I don't know, you're probably seeing this and encountering this and realizing this as you go through junior high and high school. I remember when I started to see it, I just couldn't, I was like, why? Like, why are people so, it's not even that they suppress it, they're, they're angry about it. They're so angry and, and angry that I would believe that or that somebody else would believe that and they want to stop it and they want to suppress it violently. And we see what played out in Russia, you know, back in the revolution with Stalin, with Linda. You see it happened in China. These aren't just little, like little tiny instances. You're talking nations, some of the largest nations in the world. We're seeing it happen here. It's not the violence yet, but it's the shame. It's the pressure. You're experiencing it. And, and I, I want you to hear what Paul says and what God says. Look, when you encounter that, you're going to be shocked. You're going to be like, what? What is going on? I just want you to know you're not going crazy. You're not wrong in your thinking. That shock is normal. That surprise is normal. It just is. It's, I don't know whether you ever get used to it. 
Each new story, you're like, what? And why? But don't doubt for a fact that God looks at it and he says, that is evil. And I will one day set this straight. So God's wrath is being revealed, one, because we suppress the truth or humanity suppresses the truth in that generic sense. The other thing that he says uh, that God's wrath is being revealed for is we exchange. Not only do we suppress stuff, but we exchange stuff of God for stuff of ours. And, and he says it in three different ways in this passage. He goes on to write, Therefore, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged, although they claimed to be wise, they exchanged the wisdom of God or for foolishness and worship and served created things rather than, oh no, I'm sorry, I tried to do that. Though they became wise, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. So the first thing they did was they exchanged what, or we exchanged what we worship. This, this idea of the spiritual. And they exchanged God and who he is for things that we could make. I'm going to worship this. Now that seems ridiculous because it's just a microphone, but is it any different than anything else we've ever made? No. I mean, it's, <laughs> we put the mic up there and we just get down and we bow down to this wonderful mic. It's so glorious. I mean, that's, that's what he's saying. We worship a microphone before we'll worship him. It seems ridiculous, but when you're God and you're looking at this, and when we start to understand God and his wisdom, you go, that is about the most foolish thing I've ever heard of. And, and that's what we have done historically over the years, over the span of however long humanity's been around, right? We take the wisdom of God that he deserves to be worshipped, that he's glorious, that he deserves thanks, thanks God, like genuine thanks, and, 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 and all the joy and the peace and all that that he brings, and we take that and we say, no, 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 we don't want that. We want what we can make. And what we have, we, we, we would say, this is more real than God is. Oh, thank you, microphone. Right? Oh, thank you, house. Oh, thank you, person, whoever I love. Oh, you're so, right? Like this is going to bring what God could bring. Uh, this is as glorious as God is glorious, or this person is, or whatever, that career, that car, I, I don't know. You know, the word foolish here is actually from the Greek word that we get moron. It is moronic. And I don't say that in a, because we can use that word in different ways, derogatory. It is just moronic. It lacks any intelligence. We can create our own God and, and, and think that that would fill our deepest need. That's the first exchange he, he talks about. 
The second exchange he talks about is, he says, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen? Amen. We exchanged truth for a lie. And and he goes on to say, uh, because of this, God gave them over to uh, shameful lust. Even their women abandoned natural relations with men. Uh, no, uh, their women, I, I got to make sure I got this right. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men were also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men, Right? and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. There's, there's two parts to this second exchange, and, and, it's, and it's a relational dynamic. It's the heart dynamic. First was the spirit, and now you have this relational heart dynamic. And what did we exchange, and what did we redefine? We redefined two things. Well, we redefined just one, what it means to be in relationship with people. And ultimately, he, he goes towards this idea of true intimacy and how we've exchanged what God says is true about this and, and embraced a lie. Now, it's important to, to understand when Paul wrote this letter, he was writing to the Roman Christians, but he was writing in the city of Corinth. And if you go to Corinth today, you can go out there in this city and you'll see there's a mountain about 500 feet, that kind of a mountain or hill, whatever you want to call it, but it looks over the city. And up on top of that mountain is a temple or the remains of a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. It was literally built there looking over the city. You want to talk about just like a demon reigning over his territory. That's really what that was. And Corinth was famous for this. In fact, in the, the known world there of the Mediterranean Sea, there was actually a verb, you've been Corinthized, or however you want to say it, meaning you have been perverted by Corinth. It was literally that. It's, it's, I can't, it's, everybody knew about Corinth the way everybody in America knows about Vegas. And you may say, oh, you know, not all Vegas is bad. They're the ones with the advertising campaign who says, what happens here? It's an advertising campaign that says, please come sin here, and you can leave it here. That's what that is. Nobody twisted their arm. That's what they wanted to create. A place, the Sin City, right? There's no other city in America that's called Sin City. It's, it's Vegas. And that's I'd say if I could, you know, compare the two, that would be it, if you could get it in your minds. And he's riding in the middle of, of that city, and he's looking at what's happening because they had, they had women up there in the temple. There was about, you know, you'd go up there, and it was, there were prostitutes, and they were the famous people in society. Go worship. You're the goddess of love up there and all that comes with that. And, and what God says as he's writing this, he's thinking, yeah, they've exchanged the truth for a lie because what God says about sexual intimacy, he says that is reserved for marriage between a man and a woman. And we find over and over again in Scripture that marriage bond is sealed with physical intimacy. It's a powerful relational and spiritual and physical bond. 
It's so powerful, it makes two people one. And that's why God put boundaries around it that you read over and over again in in his word. Because he doesn't want us to, to exchange the truth for a lie because if we do, it will literally rip us apart spiritually, emotionally, in our heart, and, and physically. It will tear us apart. And so he puts boundaries around it. But we exchange the truth for a lie and make up our own definition of what's good and acceptable when it comes to intimacy. And it's not just stuck in Vegas. I mean, how many men in this room are hiding an addiction to pornography? How many women? How many men or women in this room have exchanged the truth for a lie and are involved sexually or emotionally with someone that you should not be. We still do these things. The second part of this relational exchange is, is Paul says, exchanging what is natural for unnatural. And it's not that it's worse. It's just an underlying or uh, an example of the extent to which we will go to suppress the truth. And it's talking about same-sex attraction and more than that, acting out on that and living in that life. And it's a relatively new argument. You're finding churches and denominations saying, oh, no, 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 that's not what Paul meant. And they're saying, no, what Paul, Paul wasn't talking about that. He was just talking about like if you have this outside of marriage, that's wrong. Or, or if you came out of the womb oriented one way to act against that orientation, that's what's really what Paul's saying is wrong. And, and the problem with that is numerous. First of all, is just the textual evidence supporting how God understands marriage. And you find over and over again, not only God says specifically this is what marriage is, but then you find couple after couple after couple in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. And it's always man and woman. And then you find injunctions against that same sex uh, involvement in Genesis chapter 19, Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 23, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, and Romans here, very specifically there's, there's just no way you can make all these things say something else or make them go away. You can't. It's consistent, and it's repeated over and over again in the Bible. In addition, the weight of historical interpretation by Israel and by the church is that God calls that same-sex relationship unnatural and wrong. The evidence is insurmountable when you look at the Word of God and the historical interpretation of it. And my heart's heavy as, as we look at this. One, because I, I see what the church does, and, and the church often says, ah, oh, the wrath of God, and, and the church takes upon herself the duty of somehow doling out the wrath of God on people, and specifically with this particular area.
were often more famous for bringing their wrath on people who struggled in this area. How, how does that happen? It seems to me that God would have us as Christ followers as a church be a place where somebody could come and say, hey, I, I wrestle with these things. Or, hey, I've fallen in this area and find support and grace and mercy, not condemnation, not wrath. And I do believe that's what we see here. Because I would say almost week in and week out, we have people going through what we call steps of freedom, which is just simply this uh, time where you confess and you, you say, okay, God, I'm done exchanging truth for a lie. It's time to exchange the lie for truth. And I want it to invade my entire life. And it's just one of these things where people do it and they get set free. But you all don't know about it. You don't talk about that stuff. They've confessed it to somebody. And we move forward. There's no condemnation. The third exchange Paul mentions is found in verse 28. It says, uh, Paul goes on, he says, Furthermore, since they, not, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This third exchange has to do with the mind. He gave them over to a depraved mind. We, we exchanged a sound mind, a righteous mind, for a depraved mind. This word depravity, is a, that's a heavy word. That's a big one. Depravity. The opposite of depravity is pure, righteous, uncorrupted, virtuous, When we suppress the truth about God, or when humanity does, in that exchange, we give up all that is pure, all that is righteous. We give up that virtue, and we pick up depravity, which is an inclination toward evil, toward lies, towards foolishness. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they possibly could be when you say that word depravity. I think sometimes we think that. Like, everyone's as bad as they can be. And people are like, well, I'm not like that bad, which is true. It is true. Not everyone is as bad as they could possibly be. Does that make sense logically? So depravity is the inclination towards evil. That's depravity. And, and the problem is, it's not that, okay, you're as bad as you could be. It's that you're on that spectrum. You're on the line of depravity. You're in that arena. That's the problem not where you are on it, that you are on it and that you're in it. 
And sometimes people, they start to argue about where they are in that, and that's not the problem. The problem is being in it, being in this arena of depravity, in that condition of depravity. Because it affects our thinking, it affects our spirit, it affects our heart. And so our, our thinking naturally then goes towards what is depraved, what is unrighteous. And it's a, it's a long list, and some of that stuff's scary. And, and, and what's even more sobering is he gets to the end, and he says, people not only continue to do it, but they, they approve of those who practice it. They cheer them on. They can become so depraved, they lose even the sense of shame and publicly approve those who do such things. C.S. Lewis once wrote, like a child who tries to comfort himself by hiding under a blanket when he's afraid, the godless man comforts himself by covering himself up with those who are just as delusional as he is. So those are the exchanges. God's wrath is being revealed because we, we as humanity suppress the truth and we have exchanged wisdom for foolishness, truth for lies and our mind, a righteous mind for a depraved mind. And, and there's another thing that rolls through each of these things and it's a theme that happens here. As you get in, it's, it's unique to these verses right here. It's this phrase, God gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. It happens three different times. He gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. And, and that's, a, that's a scary thing because then you're like, well, what does that mean? And, and there's, there's, you know, when we think God gave them over, you know, there's often two different ways you could, you could go. I mean, people think like he smote them, right? I mean, that's the Old Testament. Chain James Verme, he will smite them and those things and destroy them. There, there's two aspects to this idea given over. There's a passive one and an, and an active sense. The passive sense is imagine someone holding a boat in a river and the current's trying to take the boat down river and... and Someone just simply lets go, and the boat is carried away. That's the passive sense, because it's the current that takes them away. There is the active sense, and, and you can get a great picture of this. When Israel was in the, the wandering, and they'd started eating the manna, and they're tired of the manna, and it's like, oh my goodness, more manna. What's for breakfast today, Mom? Manna. What's for breakfast today? Lunch. It's manna. Manna, right? And they get tired of it. I don't know if you've ever heard that Keith Green song, right? Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, manna waffles, right? Manna cotty. Banana bread, right? Sorry, it's, it's a great song out of the 70s. You can Google that as well. Um, but God says, all right, you, you want meat? They so said, we want meat. So God actively said, I'll give you meat, and you're going to eat it until it's coming out of your nose. You're going to hate it. You're going to want to barf when you ever think of meat again. Now, that's active. <laughs> Passive, active. Now, I'm not sure how these things work because both of them are in play, and God's big enough to use either one of those things. But God gave them over. God gives people over. And what we normally think, and, and actually in the halls of, uh, you know, seminaries and Bible schools, they, they created this great phrase for this, giving over. They call it judicial abandonment. Judicial abandonment. 
And what we think of when we think God has given them over in that active sense is that, and there is, biblically you have evidence of this, that God says this is my form of judgment and it's a final one. And that's the scary thing about this. When God does judicial abandonment, it could be that moment where it's all over and there's no coming back. And God warns about that. That's one of the forms of judgment. He gives people what they want, and it's awful. And they keep wanting it, and they never stop wanting it. What's interesting is C.S. Lewis said this um, when he was talking about this idea of being given over. He said, the damned, uh, he says, I consider the damned to be successful in at least one way. They were successful in denying and suppressing the truth to the very end. They lock hell's doors from the inside. A person may never come back. There is that sense of a finality to it, the judicial abandonment. But there's also evidence in the Bible of another form. And I want to leave with this. Judicial abandonment can also be in the sense of redemptive. But you're thinking, how is that possible? Several different ways. Think of the prodigal son. He let him go passively. Go have your life. Why? So that it would be redemptive. He would get his fill of it and come back to his senses. In 1 Corinthians, Paul actually writes about how you discipline someone in the church, and this person is just way out there and won't repent, won't submit, and he says, hand him over to Satan so that ultimately he will come back to God. Redemptive. See, we look at God's judicial abandonment, the wrath of God, and we think, oh, it's just all over. No, it's redemptive. It can be redemptive. So somebody gets to the point where they think, if I do that again, I think I'll throw up. I don't want to ever do that again. The reality is we live in a culture and in a world where we haven't turned the corner on this. People still suppress the truth. People still exchange the, fool, the wisdom and the truth of God for lies and for foolishness. It's just what we live in. I want to encourage you today, don't get carried away in it. Don't get overwhelmed by it. Stay grounded in Christ. Stay rooted in Christ. In school, in college, at work, no matter how many voices, no, how, no matter who's talking and saying things, hold on to the wisdom and the truth of God. Let's pray. Lord, would you uh, send us out with just a, a new awareness, a fresh, maybe a fresh awareness again and commitment to just simply standing in your wisdom, standing in your truth, just saying, Lord, we will praise you and we will thank you, even as this world does what this world does. 
I pray that you would silence the lies and the foolishness that comes against us and that many of us are under and being attacked by. God, would your truth just ring out in our hearts today? Would your wisdom just ring out and we would just walk out of here and through this day thinking and seeing and hearing from you? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.